0: Welcome to Breaking Down Patriarchy. I'm Amy McPhee-Olivest. Today we will be covering two speeches by Eleanor Roosevelt that were delivered to the United Nations in the aftermath of World War II. First, an open letter to the women of the world, and second, the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Roosevelt referred to the Declaration in particular as being a new Magna Carta for humanity, and it truly was a revolutionary document that continues to be a reference point for international human rights. But before we dive into these remarkable texts, I want to introduce my reading partner for today, Lucy Olivest. Hi, Lucy. Thanks for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. Um, I'm really grateful that you agreed to do this episode with me. I'm super excited. Um, But before we get into the text... Can you tell us about the author of the text and kind of the historical context that led to Eleanor Roosevelt writing these speeches?
1: Yes. Anna Eleanor Roosevelt was born on October 11th, 1884. Sadly, both of her parents and one of her brothers died when she was young. At 15, she attended school in London, then returned to the US. And when she was 21 years old, she married her fifth cousin once removed, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, in 1905. The Roosevelt's marriage was complicated from the beginning by Franklin's controlling mother, Sarah, and after Eleanor discovered her husband's affair with her secretary, Lucy Mercer, in 1918, she resolved to seek fulfillment in leading a public life of her own. She persuaded Franklin to stay in politics after he was stricken with a paralytic illness in 1921, which cost him the normal use of his legs, and began giving speeches and appearing at campaign events in his place. Following Franklin's election as governor of New York in 1928, and throughout the remainder of Franklin's public career in government, Roosevelt regularly made public appearances on his behalf, and as first lady while her husband served as president, she significantly reshaped and redefined the role of first lady. Though widely respected in her later years, Roosevelt was a controversial first lady at the time that her husband held office. FDR served four terms in office—this was before the two-term limit was put in place—making her the longest-serving First Lady of the United States. She was often criticized for her outspokenness, particularly on civil rights for African Americans. She was also the first presidential spouse to hold regular press conferences, write a daily newspaper column, write a monthly magazine column, host a weekly radio show, and speak at a national party convention. On a few occasions, she publicly disagreed with her husband's policies. She advocated for expanded roles for women in the workplace, the civil rights of African Americans and Asian Americans, and the rights of World War II refugees. Following her husband's death in 1945, Roosevelt remained active in politics for the remaining 17 years of her life. She pressed the United States to join and support the United Nations and became its first delegate. She served in this capacity from 1945 to 1952. She also served as the first chair of the UN Commission on Human Rights and oversaw the drafting of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. Later, she chaired the John F. Kennedy Administration's Presidential Commission on the Status of Women. By the time of her death on November 7, 1962, Roosevelt was regarded as one of the most esteemed women in the world, and in her obituary, the New York Times called her the object of
0: almost universal respect. That's amazing. Thanks, Lucy. Um, one more piece of context which will help us understand these speeches is remembering the historical moment in which they were written. So remember that World War I from 1914 to 1918 had been called the war to end all wars the carnage that came with automatic weapons and chemical warfare was unlike anything human beings had ever done to each other. And by the end, 20 million people had died, and 21 million, it's estimated, had been wounded. So that loss of life collectively traumatized the countries involved to the point that they said that God had died in the trenches. So can you imagine how veterans of world war one and their families must have felt as they faced another world war within their own lifetimes? It's all, it's unbelievable. I I can't even imagine. And uh, in world war two, of course, the human cost was even more staggering by the end of world war two it had ended up being the the deadliest military conflict in history. An estimated total of 70 to 85 million people perished, and an estimated 25 million were wounded. So adding to the grief of death and injury after the war was over, it was only gradually that the world learned of the full extent of the Nazi campaign against Jewish people and other people that they deemed undesirable. And after the war was over and the Allies entered the concentration camps, they saw the gas chambers, of course, and the mass graves, and they learned about the final solution of genocide. So it was in this context that the Allied countries banded together with other countries joining them and made the goal of ending all war. They created the United Nations, and its first charter affirmed, quote, faith in fundamental human rights and dignity and worth of the human person. And they committed all members to promote, quote, universal respect for and observance of human rights and fundamental freedoms for all, without distinction as to race, sex, language, or religion, end quote. So the first meeting of the General Assembly of the United Nations was held in London in January of 1946. During this convention, Eleanor Roosevelt addressed a meeting of women and read to them an open letter to the women of the world, inviting them to sign the document. And so now this is a really cool moment on the podcast because for the first time, we're going to actually hear a clip of the document read by the woman who wrote it. So this will be a a really special moment because we'll get to hear Eleanor Roosevelt herself um, reading her own work. So here she is reading part of the open letter to the women of the world. This first assembly
1: of the United Nations marks the second attempt of the peoples of the world to live peaceably in a democratic world community. This new chance for peace was won through the joint efforts of men and women working for common ideals of human freedom at a time when
0: need for united effort broke down barriers of race, creed, and sex. Isn't that amazing to hear her voice? It's incredible. Okay, so now we're going to read an open letter to the women of the world, and we'll make some comments as we go. So it's quite a short speech. And after that, we'll go on to the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And we'll just highlight a few points from that document, because that one's a lot longer. So, um, Lucy, do you want to start us off with the open letter to the women of the world? Yes.
1: The speech starts, quote,
0: This first assembly of the United Nations marks
1: the second attempt of the peoples of the world to live peaceably in a democratic world community. This new chance for peace was won through the joint efforts of men and women working for common ideals of human freedom at a time when the need for united effort broke down barriers of race, creed, and sex. In view of the variety of tasks which women performed so notably and valiantly during the war, we are gratified that 18 women delegates and advisors are representatives from 11 of the member states taking part in the beginning of this new phase of international effort. We hope their participation in the work of the United Nations organization may grow and may increase in insight and skill. To this end, we call on the governments of the world to encourage women everywhere to take a more active part in national and international affairs and on women to come forward and share in the work of peace and reconstruction as they did in the war and resistance, end quote. I learned quite a bit about what women actually did during the war in my U.S. history class last year, and it was shocking. In previous wars, such as the American Revolution and the Civil War, We really only hear about women contributing to the war effort by nursing wounded soldiers, sending information through letters, and sewing uniforms and flags. But in the Second World War, when most of the men were gone, women took over literally every job that the men had done before. They were in factories, welding huge metal parts for planes, manufacturing weapons, and actually ended up being more productive than the men had been. At their height, they were churning out 4,000 tanks and 4,500 planes per month. This is why we now look back on symbols like Rosie the Riveter. They weren't just sending food and managing their families' finances. They were wielding power tools, and many were even fighting. There were several civilian organizations like the Women Air Force Service Pilots and the Women's Army Corps, but others were officially in the military with the Coast Guard and volunteer emergency service with the Navy. But of course, it was very difficult to be a woman in these male-focused environments. There were very few opportunities for women of color. The women who were hired in factories during the war were immediately fired when it ended. And there were even cases where female pilots were killed by their male counterparts. Men would put sugar or rags in the women's engines, acid in their parachutes, or slash their tires, which led to forced landings and sometimes deadly crashes. It was all because they felt threatened by women entering what they believed to be their sphere. It takes a lot of insecurity and misogyny to risk sabotaging your own military for the sake of establishing dominance. As for the women at home, there were in total about 19 million women working, and until the men came home, the role of women and the family was entirely reconstructed. When the men did come home, however, everything was restored to how it had been before. Women who had fought were not given veteran status until the 70s. The military made no official recognition of their contributions, and the expectation of the subservient housewife was firmly reinstated.
0: That is so crazy. That is a lot of information that I had never learned until you just said it. Mm -hmm. Wow. Um. That was really an incredible bit of history. And, um, you know, tying it back to that opening part of the open letter to the women of the world when she's encouraging women everywhere to take a more active part in national international affairs, just like they had done with, during the war, right? And yeah. don't just recede into the background again. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, that's that's awesome. Okay, here's the next part of the open letter. Quote, we recognize that women in various parts of the world are at different stages of participation in the life of their communities, that some of them are prevented by law from assuming the full rights of citizenship, and that they may therefore see their immediate problems somewhat differently. I love this. I think this is such an important point. Um, It's so important to recognize the different place that women find themselves in, right? And that there isn't a universal experience of what it means to be like a quote unquote woman, right? Right. Like it's different for everybody. This open letter is addressed to the women of the world. In the 1940s, you can imagine the diversity of women's experiences all over the world. I just think it's really wise that Roosevelt acknowledges the different circumstances that women find themselves in within each country and from country to country. And I think she's kind of acknowledging like it may be against the law, some of the things that she's going to advocate for Mm -hmm. in this universal declaration that she is is saying like, you need to be careful and aware of your circumstances and do what works and what's the next step for you in your circumstances. Anyway, I just thought that was really great that she was aware Mm -hmm. of that. Um, okay, Lucy, can you read the next part? Yes.
1: Quote, finding ourselves in agreement on these points, we wish as a group to advise the women of all our countries of our strong belief that an important opportunity and responsibility confronts the women of the United Nations. One to recognize the progress women made during the war and to participate actively in an effort to improve their standard of life in their countries and participate in the work of reconstruction so that there will be qualified women ready to accept responsibility when new opportunities arise. End quote. This, This refers to the information I just shared about women's advances out of necessity during the war. Quote two, to train their children, boys and girls alike, to understand world problems and the need for international cooperation. Three, not to permit themselves to be misled by anti-democratic movements now or in the future. Four, to recognize that the goal of full participation in the life and responsibilities of their countries and of the world community is a common objective toward which the women of the world should assist one another, end
0: quote. Okay, this- Gives me chills because I, I think if it weren't for this history project, studying all of these essential texts chronologically, I don't think I would appreciate what a big deal those statements are. Especially if you take number two and number four together Eleanor Roosevelt says that we need to train boys and girls alike to understand world problems. She says men and women should have the goal of full participation in the life and responsibilities of their countries and the world community. This was written just a few years after Virginia Woolf, right? Look how much has changed from the time of separate spheres ideology Mm -hmm. and the angel in the house, right? Women just one generation prior to this were being actively discouraged and even prohibited from full participation in the life of their country. Right. I mean, even the the right to vote was Mm -hmm. so recent, they couldn't participate in civic life. They Mm -hmm. weren't allowed to. Right. So this is really amazing. And it seems to me that the war changed things drastically in the women, in the way the women saw themselves. Mm -hmm. Right. What they were allowed to do, but just their own sense of empowerment. Um, And of course, number three is really important too, where she says that women should not allow themselves to be misled by anti-democratic movements. And that, of course, is in the wake of a a fascist dictatorship nearly overrunning all of Europe. Okay. So next we have, that's the end of the open letter to the women of the world. And next we're going to do the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. So Before we start reading parts of that, can you tell us a little bit about it and give us some context, Lucy? A few months after
1: the UN's first meeting in January of 1946, they decided to draft an international bill of rights. The whole world was reeling from the atrocities that they were learning about that had happened during the war, and the UN decided there needed to be a declaration that people could point to to define the rights of all human beings to keep such tragedies from happening again. The committee had 18 members from various national, religious, and political backgrounds so as to try to be representative of humanity. In February 1947, the commission established a special Universal Declaration of Human Rights Drafting Committee chaired by Eleanor Roosevelt of the United States to write the articles of the Declaration. The committee met in two sessions over the course of two years.
0: The document consists of a preamble and 30 articles, some of which have multiple sub points. So there's no way we're going to get through all of them. So instead, Lucy and I chose a couple of points each, and we'll take turns highlighting the ones that stuck out to us the most. So I'll start with the preamble. So this is the preamble of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948. Oh, and I should note too, In the preamble, a lot of the um, sentences start with the word whereas, and we were both kind of thrown off by that word because we think of whereas meaning like in contrast or comparison with the fact that, and then another clause in the sentence. But there's a second meaning, especially in legal preambles, where the word whereas means taking into consideration the fact that. Right, and so that's how it's used here in the document. But we kept thinking, we kept waiting for the other clause. Like, whereas this is true, and we're like, what? What's what's the other half of the sentence? Uh, Anyway, so it all starts with whereas. Um, Quote: Here's the first part. Quote: Whereas recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. That's the first uh, sentence. So again, doing this history project has given me such perspective, having just recently read the Declaration of Independence in the United States and the Declaration of the Rights of Man in France, both of which completely neglected women. And completely neglected people of color, um, who are who were in the United States at the time enslaved. I am really like emotional reading this and thinking. Finally, it says all members of the human family. That means every single person. And you can't go back to the Declaration like you could in the United States or in France mm-hmm. and say, "Well, it does only say men." Right. And what we mean by that is white male landowners. Right. No. Mm-hmm. It's very clear, and I know she was intentional about that, about saying every member of the all members of the human family. That's who this is addressed to, and that's who these articles apply to. Mm -hmm. Okay, so the next point. Whereas disregard and contempt for human rights have resulted in barbarous acts which have outraged the conscience of mankind, and the advent of a world in which human beings shall enjoy freedom of speech and belief and freedom from fear and want, has been proclaimed as the highest aspiration of the common people. I'm going to skip the word whereas. (laughs) I'm just going to read the sentences. It's easier to understand that way. It is essential if man is not to be compelled to have recourse as a last resort to rebellion against tyranny and oppression, that human rights should be protected by the rule of law. It is essential to promote the development of friendly relations between nations. The people of the United Nations have in the charter reaffirmed their faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, and in the equal rights of men and women, and have determined to promote social progress and better standards of life in larger freedom. Okay, and I have to pause there too. Equal rights of men and women. Finally, now people can choose whether or not They want to work to make that ideal a reality. It's aspirational, I guess, still, but at least it's now articulated as an aspiration, and we have it written down in an international document. In any case, let's move on, and I will take Article 14 and 16. So Article 14 says, um, Part 1. Everyone has the right to seek and to enjoy in other countries asylum from persecution. So thinking about asylum seekers always breaks my heart. I just feel like life is so unfair with the luck of the draw of which country you happen to be born into, right? Which family, which neighborhood, which side of an arbitrarily created border you happen to be born on, right?
1: I completely agree. And something that I thought of was the hypocrisy of white Americans telling especially non-white immigrants that they're not welcome here. Mm -hmm. Because every single white American came from immigrants. I think about my own heritage. And because my people came from Ireland during the potato famine and the Netherlands after World War II, I have no right to look at another person escaping poverty or war and say that they deserve asylum less. Yeah.
0: Amen. True. Okay. Um, I have also article 16, and then I'll turn it over to you, Lucy, for your articles. Mine are all kind of front-loaded together. Um, I chose article 16, which is about marriage, and there are three different points, and I'm just going to talk about them really briefly, Um, but they were very interesting to me. Number one, quote, Men and women of full age, without any limitation due to race, nationality, or religion, have the right to marry and to found a family. They are entitled to equal rights as to marriage, during marriage, and at its dissolution. And I just thought, wait, what? How did I never hear of this? Why did I not hear this referenced when marriage rights for the LGBTQ plus community were being debated in the U.S.?
1: I I think that's just another case of language that isn't as inclusive as we would want nowadays. Mm. It, It protects the marriage rights of individuals without any limitation due to race, nationality, or religion. But it says nothing about sexual orientation or gender identity. So in this case, I guess we have to celebrate the win for interracial couples and remind ourselves that this was written in 1948.
0: Okay, you're right. I guess that's true. It does have to, I mean, in a legal document, it does have to specify every single category, right? right? And it doesn't mention, like you said, sexual orientation or gender identity. I guess I read it and just saw like, everyone has equal rights to have a marriage. And I was like, what? Yeah, I get I mean, I guess you're right. Specifically, it doesn't mention that. But I guess and the other point to bring up, I guess, is the right to dissolve a marriage, because the last word is it's they have rights for its dissolution. So the right to divorce is mm-hmm. really important as well in that article. Um, good point. And I love your attitude of celebrating the win yes. <laughs> and giving the benefit of the doubt that sometimes just things aren't on people's minds. And they just have blind spots still, right, yeah. in the 1940s. Progress always happens through baby steps. Yes, that is that is true. Um, okay, the second point in this marriage article is, quote, marriage shall be entered into only with the free and full consent of the intending spouses, end quote. Okay, and then we could have a long co- conversation about what's a good age for consent, right? But, mm-hmm. um, um, and then the third... Point from this marriage article is, quote, the family is the natural and fundamental group unit of society and is entitled to protection by society and the state, end quote. And I agree. And the thing that came to my mind there quickly is just families should never be separated. And that's all I have for Article 16. I have Article
1: 18 and it says, quote, everyone has the right to freedom of thought, conscience and religion. This right includes freedom to change his religion or belief and freedom, either alone or in community with others and in public or private, to manifest his religion or belief in teaching, practice, worship and observance, end quote. This is such an important article because of the persistence of discrimination and hate crimes, especially against the Jewish and Muslim communities. And this declaration of religious rights is another thing that really impresses me, actually, and I wish people would reflect more on this issue. But one part of these articles that I've noticed is the use of only he-him pronouns, and while this does not surprise me in the slightest, I still find it frustrating. And I think men don't Think about it, but every time non male people hear only those pronouns, we notice. And we, or at least I, think that does not apply to me. I'm not included in that.
0: Yeah, I absolutely agree. I've always noticed that too. And it is really, it's always been hard for me. It reminds me of Simone de Beauvoir and how she pointed out in her book, The Second Sex, that man is primary. Like he asserts himself as the primary person. So Mm -hmm. he's the main character of the whole human story. And the woman is a secondary supporting character. So our language is male because the protagonist speaker is male. Right. Right. In Article 19, it says, quote,
1: Everyone has the right to freedom of opinion and expression. This right includes freedom to hold opinions without interference and to seek, receive, and impart information and ideas through any media and regardless of frontiers, end quote. So my question here is what happens when someone's opinion involves denying
0: another person their rights? That's such a great point. It reminds me, Grandpa always says... Um... Your right to throw a punch ends at the tip of my nose. Have you ever heard him (laughs) say that? It's really good, right? But it 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 is it does get complicated. Like you said, like who has I mean, that's a very clear physical act, so that one Mm -hmm. is easy to decide, right? Like I might want to throw my fist around, but it I And
1: you can. It doesn't hurt anyone. (laughs) Right, exactly.
0: For Article
1: Five, it says, quote, one, everyone has the right to a standard of living adequate for the health and well-being of himself and of his family, including food, clothing, housing, and medical care, and necessary social services, and the right to security in the event of unemployment, sickness, disability, widowhood, old age, or other lack of livelihood in circumstances beyond his control. 2. Motherhood and childhood are entitled to special care and assistance, all children, whether born in or out of wedlock, should enjoy the same social protection, End quote. I absolutely agree that all children are entitled to special care and assistance. And motherhood is beautiful, and I love you, Mama. <laughs> but it has always been weird to me that women and children are grouped together. I thought of the movie Titanic, where in, in the state of emergency, they say, Women and children first. Like, yes, put the children on the boats but then prioritize people who can't swim or something like that. But dividing it by gender doesn't really make sense to me. You can't give women all the privileges that men have and then give them special treatment because that's not equality. I don't want to be treated like Adam's rib, but I also (laughs) don't want to be treated like a weird angel baby. I just want to be a
0: person. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, I guess me neither. I don't want to be treated like either of those things. And that's it for all the articles that we chose. So as we come to the end of our discussion, what would you say is a takeaway that you will remember from these documents?
1: I'm so impressed and frankly shocked by how progressive so many of these arguments are, specifically related to gender, of course, but also race, religion, and education. And what Roosevelt and the general UN outline here sound like they could have been written yesterday. Mm -hmm. But the fact that these ideas are not new, that they've been introduced time and time again and are still being debated and ignored is incredibly frustrating. So it it, it makes me both hopeful for our future and also disappointed that we still seem so far away from the same ideals
0: we've had for decades.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. I would say that's... a a really great insight. And one of the themes I would say of the whole uh, podcast project is each, a lot of the texts that we've read have made me feel really grateful on one hand and really disappointed on the other. Right. Um, But like you said, baby steps Um, and it's good to articulate our aspirations and then try to live into them, I suppose. Well, I love ending on that note, Lucy, that wraps it up. And thank you so much for doing this. I learned so much from you, as I always do. And I think you're amazing. Thanks, Mama.